Before we start the show, I just wanted to reach out and say that if you are loving listening to The Truth Prescription as much as we are loving making it, please subscribe to the podcast. Hit that subscribe button. Rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and iHeartRadio, to name a few. And come check us out at www.thetruthprescription.com to get more insights and info, because the truth will set you free if you let it. I've been thinking about this podcast and what I was going to tell you about, because all the things that I would say are all going to say the same thing. Look for signs and listen to yourself and pray. Gentlemen and ladies, brothers and sisters, people, whoever you are and wherever you are, welcome to the Truth Prescription Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sekou Gavis. And each week I interview successful people from around the world and discuss how accepting the truth can propel your career and help you live a life of gusto and purpose. No mantras, no gimmicks, just the truth. So close your eyes and open your ears and let's get into this. Come on. Welcome to another episode of the Truth Prescription Podcast. I'm your humble host, Dr. Sekou Gathers, and today I have the pleasure of talking to author Elisa Stansel. How are you, Elisa? I'm good. Hello, Dr. Gathers. <laughs> All right. I'm glad, uh, glad to have you on. Elisa is the author of This or Something Better, which is right behind her, the, the poster, This or Something Better. And we'll, we're going to get into... Uh, what that actually means. I, I find it to be a very thought-provoking title. So let's jump right into, uh, Elisa, let's jump right into your truth prescription. A story, and you have many, because I've, <laughs> I've read a lot about you. You've had an interesting life. A story from your life where there was some truth about you that you were either ignoring or you just weren't aware of. That once you accepted it, you fully took it on and said, I'm going to just deal with this from a real place a breakthrough happened. You're right. There's many. I'm going to pick one because it really ties into the mojo factor and the rage factor that can propel you. As a very, very young child, I was abused, but that was something I realized I could not change. And I thought I had worked around. And I also decided by the time I was five, that I would have to make my own life. Hmm. So, okay. I'm, you know, marching that march, right? I'm already making my own life. Right. Making your own life and you don't need anybody. No one's going to help me. I didn't say yeah. I didn't need anybody. Okay. <laughs> but okay. No, one, no one's going to help me. No one sees what I see. No one knows what I know and I can't share it. They're just not present. So, okay, then just do it. You know, that was the idea. That created a, a certain degree of limitation, but you don't, you're not aware of that at five and, you know, you proceed. So, of course, I have proceeded and, and I've done all these different things. And I, by the time we're going to enter this sort of a realization, I am 23 and I have a son, my second son. My first baby died. I have my second son and I have elected to spend a year living on 2,000 acres in the country uh, where there's just cow, some cows and this little farmhouse, and we're living there on welfare so that I can spend the time that I need to spend with my son before he has to start school. Because I've been so immersed in what I was trying to do to get myself ready to be a whole person that I hadn't really spent hardly any time with him. So I decided to do this thing. And while there, I would be 
becoming more spiritual. So here we were, son and mother, and I spent this whole year there with him and it was beautiful. But as I, I noticed as time passed, I was becoming less, more and more reclusive, fearful of any kind of social interaction. And I noticed that I was just beginning to get kind of angry. And this anger, it was a Halloween night and I'd been there a year, maybe a year and a half. And suddenly I, it was a full moon. I leapt up. I ran in the middle of the night up this hillside to where I could see Sacramento, which was the nearest city. I was just so pissed off. And I said, listen, God, I am tired of this. If I'm so spiritual, if us is who I am, then what am I doing hiding out here? I am not retired. <laughs> you know, I'm 20-something. I got to get it together. So I said, you know, I promise, I vow, I will go to the city. I will make money. I will work physically for five years. I will work emotionally and mentally and build myself into 15 years from now. I will be really where I need to be. The wind is blowing through me and the moon is shining and I see the city in the distance and I just stalk right back down the mountain, go into my little tiny old farmhouse, which was $40 a month furnished. Okay. Wow. This was 1970, I don't know, 75, 72, something like wow. that. Wow. Okay. But anyway, uh, so I made this vow and then I wrote down a, li a list, you know, this, this is what I need. What I want from you, God, I need a place to live that is like this, where I will feel safe, where I will be able to live, not with my mother, okay, <laughs> and not in a condo, not in some brand new setting. I couldn't tolerate that. It had to be the right place. And I needed it by Christmas Day. I'll do the rest. Did that, looked around, felt happy. Decided to start making money. How would I make money? Welfare was giving me $140 a month, okay? I wasn't going to be able to get a lot of money for first and last month rent or anything. By Christmas, with nothing, okay? So, and the idea had been you'd go on welfare because later you're going to be paying all this back and this is what you do to be a good, you know, citizen and you raise a child who understands life and then you contribute. So I realized I had this little short story. So I made all these copies of the short story because I had paper and I had a pen. Yeah. And it's a children's story. So I made all these children's stories. I did, knew there was a craft fair coming up, but just some stories wasn't going to be enough. So I decided to make these little, I had a bunch of corduroy and a bunch of velvet ribbon. So I made um, a bunch of little children's aprons out of corduroy with this velvet ribbon around the neck. So it'd be super comfortable with a big pocket. And then I bought some giant crayon for the pocket. And so then that was it. I had a friend who made me this booth that looked like an old cabin. And I just brought my son, the aprons, the stories, and a rocking chair. And that's with my business, right? I'm going to make money now, right? So I did. I did sell all those things. But while I was there, because I mean, this is the mojo part. You listen to yourself. You get a sign. You, you know, I'm mad. I don't know what to do. You pray. Okay. Mm. And then you carry on. So I go down to this place and somebody comes by and says, you know, there's a guy that wants to meet you because he heard you're really creative. I said, oh, okay. You know, just a guy. I was already in this year long celibacy thing. So he comes and he's like, I just think, I think I need you to come to the house that I'm remodeling because I heard you're really creative and I want your eyes on this so I can figure out what to do with this house. Hmm. So we go, my son and I go to this house. It's right in this little Italian neighborhood where no one has moved for a zillion years. All the buildings are like my favorite era. And he has this building and I'm looking at the house and I'm looking at him. I'm thinking, yeah, I see all this. 
He said, well, let me show you the back. We go in the back and there's this little cottage. It's like a little one and a half room cottage way at the back. And a guy is, who's the renter is leaning against the threshold like, mm-hmm, no, you're not, you ain't coming in here. You know, <laughs> like, oh, I'm not going to even talk about, I, I see my new place. I see he's got to go. I'm, not, I'm saying nothing to him or anybody. I'll just see what happens. So this was like three weeks before Christmas. So I go back home. I've gotten done all with my stuff. I say goodbye to the guy. And, and then on Christmas Eve day, somebody drives up to my house, which I don't have a phone because I couldn't afford it. They drive up to my house and you can see the dust coming from the, the, you know, 2,000 acres is a long dirt road to get to my little house. And they say, hey, you know, David, that guy you met, he says that little cottage is available if you want to move in tomorrow. Wow. Yes. <laughs> it just so happens. I had a truck, so that was, you know, it didn't mean much. I just got everything together, told James we're going to have a new adventure. This is what I'm saying is. I've been thinking about this podcast and what I was going to tell you about, because all the things that I would say are all going to say the same thing. Look for signs and listen to yourself and pray. Yeah. I love this story because what it really illustrates is you took something like anger and you transformed it. You transmuted it. You didn't just do in it or lash out. You asked source or, you know, some people that's God, some people that has a different name, but you asked your creative source. What is this? <laughs> you know, what's going yeah. on? You took all that frustration and you balled it up into action. And that's what I really hear from your story in terms of when I really distill it down to what the truth was. It's really about take proactive steps toward what you want and follow your intuition. I love how you you are very clear. You are very concrete. That's nothing I teach people. Be concrete when, you, when you're going for something. You're very concrete. I want this thing, this thing, this thing, and this thing. And yeah. then you actually put action into the doing of it. I just feel from you at that time, you were just in a very, almost like bohemian, just very free space yes. and state, yeah. like very flexible. Permeable is kind of the idea. You get into this permeable state and you're when you're witnessing without judgment, which is another thing I really think is a flawlessly amazing space to be. And I don't know how to tell someone to get there, but if you do get there, be happy, look at it. And let the wind blow through you because that's what you're doing. You're witnessing without judgment. So in this case, really, I just had gotten really kind of clenched up. I knew something was bothering me, but what was it? What was it? And this is another thing that I learned through my whole career. And I did work with that guy about that house. And then I fell in love with his partner. And then we did 16 houses in six years there in that same little community. That was interesting. But what I learned through the work I was doing with buildings is also true for people, which is please do not ask what is wrong. All you have to ask me is what is wanted? What is wanted? If it's a room and it's all dark and the moldings are all strange and the windows are too small and blah, 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 I see all that. That's not the answer. The answer is what does it want? Wants light or and in some cases like you have a very small room and you think, well now I have to paint it white. Because it's a very small room. I make it very bright. No, no. (laughs) Love the fact that it's a small room. It's always going to be a small room. No matter what you do to it, it's going to be a small room. So you get to do whatever you want. Okay. If you want a dark, rich, exciting, exotic room, you've got the space. This is your, you know, your bathroom or something. Go for it. Make it beautiful. Don't try to make it what it's not. All these things are lessons I got from nature. And that's what I'm really sort of delving into in the book and about life itself. 
and how you can take lessons from nature. And sometimes you need a big slap in the face, which I got in 2017. So you you mentioned at the end of your truth that this idea of transparency or permeability, right? Observing non-judgmentally, letting things flow through you. Now, coming from someone that had a history of abuse, it takes a lot to get from abuse to that place. Typically what happens with, with an abuse, and I was also abused as a child, you're kind of like this to everything. Exact opposite of permeability. You, you like, get the hell away from me, right? Because that pain was, was difficult. So my, my question to you is a nice segue is, you know, your, your company, Stancil Studios, really has perfected this really artistic interior design with paint, right? Beautiful, beautiful work. How did you redesign your internal world when you were going through that process of getting from the trauma to this state of permeability? Well, the interesting part about my trauma, of course, it was very private because it was my grandparents, not my parents. No. So my parents were very distant and they were busy in that land leading the land, 1950s parental way after the war. They were both in the war and everything is fine now. So nothing is wrong. Everything is fine. We're going to mow the lawn. We're going to, you know, iron your shoelaces, you know, just really, really trying to be fine. So there was no purchase. I couldn't, you know, get close to them. My grandparents, I really loved to be there because it felt so real. It was so real. Everything was real. But my grandfather was really my step-grandfather who was a pedophile. And he came into my grandmother's life when she had three little grandchildren, daughters. I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden I'm the special one and I'm sitting on his lap and I get the bites of the pancake. I get these things. And when my grandmother, who was Seventh-day Adventist, was at church on Saturdays, then I would have my special time with my grandfather. And this was before I could even speak. And I didn't know it was abuse. I thought I was special, right? Just this was very special, very close. And I felt comforted and known. Then... My grandmother, for some unrelated, maybe related reason, decided that she would start scrubbing me when she got in the mood. If she came home from wherever, she would get in this mood. And my, all my cousins knew that she was coming for me. She would come for me. She would put me in this washtub sink with scalding water and scrub me with Fels Napta soap. I don't know if you know what that is. But it's this dingy, yellow, smelly soap for bad dirt. Because you were Catholic. Yeah. But I didn't know that was why. She just kept saying, you're a murderer. You're a murderer. Under her breath. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, and then I just wait. She would let me go. She, you know, I'd get that towel that was out of the line. It was all stiff and run upstairs and put my clothes back on. Yeah. And just, you know, try to cope. And so finally, okay, I'm alone with her. I'm five. So my grandfather stopped. When as soon as I started talking, he moved on to the next granddaughter who was fresh for him. Who couldn't talk, right. Di- yes, diabolical, you know, diabolical you and know, sinister. You do know what I'm talking about. Yeah, diabolical <laughs> and sinister. Okay, so finally I'm alone with my grandmother. She's a nurse and she's respected in the community so hugely. People have given her a brand new car. They have given her color TVs. She's a private nurse for all these people and she does this beautiful work. And she's super involved in her church. So everybody thinks she's a saint. She has these braids that are circle her head and they're silver. You know, and so I'm sitting behind her in her brand new car and she drives like this because she thinks it saves gas. So we're like weaving back and forth, you know, and I'm like, oh, I'm alone and I'm five. But it sort of ties into that whole thing is if it's if it's to be, it's up to me. 
Grandma, how I you know how can I be a murderer? I'm just a little child. Nice question. Great question. She's like, doesn't matter. You're Catholic. The Catholics killed thousands of people during the Crusades. So that's just like you did it yourself. And I'm like, Crusades. I mean, I'm five. So Crusader Rabbit had just come out two years before. It was a great cartoon. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, Crusader Rabbit, Crusades, my grandmother. Okay, it makes no sense. Okay, I can't, can't work with this. So I just shift over and I look outside and I see we're in this pear orchard passing by on these little little slow hills. And you know how the pear orchard just will open and close as you drive by because the rows are so straight, so it looks like a pattern. And I'm like, okay, just never mind. I am here with the pear orchard. This woman is nuts. <laughs> I can't do anything about it. I can't tell my dad because this is my dad's mom. What am I going to say? She's bad. No, I don't. I can't say that. So I say nothing. The armor begins to be built early on when I see I have no power, and this armor is invisible, as you know, where it's invisible to us for the longest time until this fire in 2017. I thought of it as a shadow, the shadow of shame, and how you can't escape your shadow. The only time you can have no shadow is when you're in full light, right, straight on. So if you could just stand under the light of God, under the light of truth, you wouldn't have a shadow. You know, this is, I'm just trying to figure it out, right? I'm only five. So that's what I tried to do and try not to ever do wrong. Always keep a promise. Yeah. But never, never, Dr. Gathers, am I realizing that I have this coding that is, you know, it's invisible to me and it's not being reviewed. And even when you said something about knowing about abuse, I realized I, I, st- I checked my back to make sure I was in a closed door, closed room, safe, right? <laughs> I'm 72. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it does not go away. Okay. But you just work with it. Yeah. You, you definitely work with it. I guess what I was trying to get to is, you know, from the age of three, four, five after that happened to a place now where you can actually have that non judgment, that transparency, a degree of it. What was that process like? How did you redesign your internal world? Like, how did that happen? All the lessons I got about trust and kindness, gratitude, and joy came from nature. So those worked great for me in nature. (laughs) So, but it's a little limiting. I had a very hard time translating that to people. And I remember just going on and on about intimacy because I like that word individuation, another word I thought I understood. And these are two things I, I knew nothing about. Finally, I have to say, I don't know about that. <laughs> I really don't. You can curse. It's okay. I know the words, but I don't know what it means. It really was a variety of different therapies that I used um, as I was evol- evolving in maturity. So in the beginning, I definitely used my rage to unleash positive energy because I felt it like it's holding me down. So I would take a stick and beat a, a log. I'd ask the log first, can I beat the hell out of you? And just beat it until I felt good. And I mean, sometimes it would be so much beating alone in the woods that I would feel like I'd been water skiing the next day. You know, like I used muscles I never used in my back. Like, oh, okay, I guess I was really mad. It reminds me actually of biodynamic therapy, which is a, a form of therapy where you it's a little bit of talk therapy, but it's mostly figuring out where the tension is in your body and releasing it through things like that. Just hitting, yelling, 
really weird like vocalization exercises. So that's great. And I'm saying not weird in a negative connotation, but weird if you haven't done it. I spent some time uh, working with it and it's it's phenomenal. Works well with, with trauma. And you've had a few traumas. One of the other things, you've dealt with a lot of loss in your life. And I know you, you had a fiance that died. What would you say you've developed in terms of your mindset around managing loss? The first loss, it was a deep, this cannot be undone loss, was the death of my first baby. And at 16, when I got pregnant, I had prayed to get pregnant so I could get married because I was going to make my own way and I was going to be free. <laughs> so I thought the Virgin Mary could help me with that. Magically, it worked. I got pregnant by the boy, my 17-year-old boyfriend. I promised that baby through thick and thin, despite people wanting me to get it adopted, sending me away to be an au pair somewhere else, um, trying to get, have me get an illegal abortion at that time. It was 1966. No, I said, I'm, this is my baby. You know, I was probably trying to create a family, uh, some kind of other that would be totally sensitive and tender and connected to me. And, you know, this is not a fair, that's not a fair reason, particularly to have a baby at 16. I'm just saying, you know, but this is where I was. And I promised this baby through everything that we would be together and everything would be beautiful. And during the birth process, he was, he, they made me wait to push because the doctor wasn't in there. And I said, there's something wrong with my baby. I need to have this baby now. I was tied down and they refused to let me push. And the baby died in the birth canal in those last four minutes when I was waiting for that doctor to get his butt in there. And then they gave me an injection. I kept saying, let me hold my baby. Let me tell my husband myself, let me just hold my baby. And I could smell the alcohol and feel, you know, and they gave me a shot and I was out for like maybe 16 hours. So my poor husband, and it was just there. I never saw the baby. That was the first loss. So that was definitely, this cannot be undone. All you think you are creating, all that you have promised may not be, may not come to pass. And that, that was just such a deep, deep pain. It took me quite a long time to circle back around. And I didn't really, I felt abandoned by God in part, but more than anything, I had not kept my promise. Now, the question is, am I a murderer then? Because they go back all the way back to those first five years. Am I a murderer? And if I am, how did this ha How did I murder this baby? Did I love him too much? Maybe he did not need to be on the planet. Maybe he, had, he got what he needed to have at this time. These are all the thoughts you were having at the time. Yeah, I'm like all 17. Yeah, because you, you know that the, the actual fact is that this was probably a malpractice case. <laughs> it's probably a loss. It's probably a malpractice suit and not any like esoteric thing of the, the child. But you tend to always think it's your fault if you've been. You know, I mean, this is my thing. My husband's always said, you know, you're hyper responsible. You know, not everything is your fault. Anyway, back then, that husband. After we had the second baby, he was ten, the baby was 10 months old, my son. Um, we divorced, but that was just... Um, so that loss was number one. And I thought I would... I knew what I was going to do. Because again, I'm very kinetic, so it had to be something physical. If I, I'm confronted with another loss like this, because the pain is so great, you just must scream as loud as you can, as hard as you can, to create room, for, to the room for this new loss. And I was ready. If I had another loss, I was set. When my fiancé died, I was 29. 
I went into this little powder room where I was told he had died in a car accident. I went into this little powder room, which I had actually decorated and done all this stuff in. And I took this towel and I was going to scream in it. And I realized this is not, this is not really going to work. Mm. No. And all of a sudden I realized how much your life is based on the future. And it's like a crystalline dream that just turns to dust in just one word, dead, dead, dust. And that I did not deal with well. I did not deal with that well. Dr. Gathers, I started using cocaine, suppressing my feelings, trying to be that person who I who does what they said, keeps their promise, no matter what, I'm going to be okay. But I had forgotten to tell him to get gas. I was supposed to remind him to get gas. So am I a murderer? Did I do that? So all these things, they, they pile up. Yeah, the messaging, the messaging from your grandmother, right? Yeah, not my world. Okay, you try to be free, right? Look at how people try to be free. They try to, it's the counter-programming, right? Against whatever you came, came with and with these people. You try to do the opposite as though that's freedom. That is not freedom. I'm sorry. It takes a long time to start to really get into an authentic genesis of what, who you want to be and what you're going to do. And I don't know, who, do you ever? Totally. I don't know. I don't know about that. It's a continuous journey. When I you know, work with clients, what I try to tell them very early on is that with personal development, there is no end. It's only continuous improvement and continuous connection to what's real. Um, but there is no end because the spirit is infinite. So that's what I've found in, in my experience, both my own work and the work with my clients. So out of those two experiences, obviously, uh, the sort of horrific death with your son and then later at, at you know, your 20s, the death of your fiance. Am I hearing that you haven't really come up with a sort of approach to how to deal with loss or it's just a work in progress? How would you manage like if you had a loss tomorrow, how do you think you would manage it now versus when your when your son died? I'm still finding it very philosophical. You know, there's a distance that I maintain, but there is one aspect that has helped me that in between those two losses, I myself, when I had my second son, died in the right after the delivery. And then they brought me back through all these transfusions and all these other things. And in that death experience, which is in the book, but what I saw, this uh, the idea of essence and every, that everything is essence was completely confirmed. And it was beautiful and joyful and like a drop of water in the sea, that same joyful feeling maybe when water gets evaporated into a cloud. Now I'm home. Oh, no, now I'm home. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When are we home? Where are we? What's going on? This essence and the colors and the sound of thousands of angels with one, one uh, this voice of vibration. Yeah. was so incredible that and and that was in that was before I had ever done any LSD or anything so it certainly it wasn't something I could talk about I was 18 I was 1968 so I have this understanding of how that felt to me then so there is a little bit of ease I had to say to myself with loss number 2 my fiance you know this and maybe this is just denial. It's fine if it is. It helped a little bit. It didn't happen to me. It happened to him. And what's more important to me is that he lived. So I've never understood people celebrating the death day or that kind of thing. Or like making it, 
you know, no, that's just not what it's about. The fact that someone lived, okay, and the, this, the, like the, the love that I generated between myself and the baby and the, that I experienced was real. And the presence of my fiancé was amazing. And he gave me this whole sense of words that I hadn't had and might not have gotten, right? And I'm grateful. For me, when I interface with, with death, death is, is harsh. It's cold. It's finite. It's also truth. And I think just like a lot of truths, they're very uncomfortable for us, you know, as humans. And I think the more comfortable we can get with truth, the more peace that we can have internally to live with, everybody that comes here has to go at some point. And obviously we're going to miss them, but it's just one of those, those, those stark realities, right? And it's not about being cold or being not sensitive. It's really just what you said, that this person lived a beautiful life. Loved having them here. And now they've ended their cycle. So you know what? Let's let's jump into the book a little bit. I feel like there's a hidden meaning behind this 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 uh, title. This or something better. Tell the listeners what what that title, what you trying what are you trying to say there? Well, the subtitle was supposed to be the memoir of a maker, but my um publicist didn't like that, thought maybe people wouldn't know what a maker was. So okay. So she put this resilience thing on there that was, I accepted. I, I, I disagree wow. with the publicist, but go ahead. Yeah. Memoir so, of a creative. Um, that could have been, that could have been. Yeah. So the, this is an affirmation that I use and have used and is also, I'm not sure who or where it came from, but I use it because it's the same thing. Let's say I'm at a job site. I can't start the day I set, was supposed to start. I've showed up with everything because they said they were ready. And I have 10 women and all of my equipment and I'm ready to roll. And we're going to do beautiful things like the cherry on top of this place. And we get there and it's not ready. And nobody told me. This pisses me off. Okay. <laughs> I don't like this. Right? This didn't have to happen. So the first thing I do is like, oh, okay. Now, if this is this. What can we do that's going to make it even better? It might be that we all go out and get coffee and, and they know that we're mad and we come back and things are straightened out. It might be that we say, oh, we see a place over here. We can put our stuff. Let us just put it here for a minute. And then we, we put our stuff there and then we say, hmm, maybe that room is ready. We'll go over there. And never mind the plan. We're doing this. Or it just might be we all go home and go swimming or something. <laughs> just whatever. But you can't, you know, you got to look at what can be done. Take what is. And then if you and, and accept it. In fact, you can even be totally grateful. I, I just want to say that when you're in a, there's places where you, when you're in a state of stasis where you're just you suddenly realize maybe you're actually even the dreaded thing bored. Let's take a look at what's happening, what you're actually grateful for, and if this is the the condition, then what could be even better? You just ask for it. Ask yourself for it. Show it. Show, you know, walk to it. So it is a very action-oriented kind of thing. And I want people to realize that I'm saying accept and love what you have and then add, you know, and I'm not saying getting stuff. I'm saying I love on Wednesdays, I cook for four hours for, I make two, uh, the main course for 200 meals. And it's a giant kitchen and it's this, the scale is huge. What you're making is like in the night kitchen, right? I love cooking. Well, now even more. Okay, now I love cooking even more. It's going to be 200 meals. Okay, yay. This makes me so happy, right? It's only four hours. But 
look what you're doing. You're, you're taking food from all these different community gardens that they bring in. You make something amazing. They send it out to whoever wants to come and they take as much as they want for any reason. And then it goes on the next day and the next day. Who wouldn't want to be part of that, right? I'm going to name this episode, The Power of the Pivot. You have a very, a very beautiful way about you in terms of how you've learned to just be flexible, just move with it, not get yeah. stuck, not get held hostage by negativity. This is exactly right. You know, the river, we were, I was raised on the South Fork of the American, where gold was discovered in 1848. I wasn't there then, but I was <laughs> the river. That is where I learned so much. You watch the patterns. I remember one year, I was like maybe 10, I decided I was going to watch for a pattern to repeat in the current, just in a really nice little eddy where obviously it could be, you know, even though it seems like it never repeats. And, you know, they say you can never step in the same river twice because it's always moving. Do you think it's the river? You think you know it. This is life. Same thing. So I decided prior to ever hearing that phrase, Look, at I've, I, I've never seen anything repeat itself, and I'm going to sit here until it does, okay? So I'm watching and watching and watching. And sometimes it almost, I mean, I tell you, almost, I would start laughing so hard, being like, ha-ha, you almost did it. You know? <laughs> this is my game by myself, right? So this is the whole idea when I was really running my teams and everything. My son owns a company now, but when I was doing this, I'd say, I know it's hard for you to understand that we're going to be really flexible. I know it's going to, it seems like everything's always changing. But in fact, this is the way it is. This, is. this is having your own business. You know how you think you're going to have your business on a certain day, something's going to happen. Remember and understand that you're making it up and it is, it's co-created with everything else that's coming to you. So there's the lessons from the river showing me how things just flow and how you continue to flow and you are the river are things that help me with flexibility. I tried to be as honest as I could in this book and I talk about the fact that because I really didn't understand human nature, most of my interactions have been transactional for so many years. I told my team, you know, if you really have a feeling something's happening for you, you, you have a need or you want my empathy or any way understanding, you have to trust me. You must come to me and say, I am having a feeling. I'm having some feelings. And if you say that, everything will stop. Mm-hmm. But you have to trust me enough, take that risk. And I realized that it doesn't make sense because it doesn't seem like I would hear you. Chris Rock recently talked about this with his own, his own self that because of some of the traumas he had gone through, that he was just really awkward with people. Socially, really, really awkward. Obviously not on stage, he's a genius, but when he would go off stage, and this was recently diagnosed where he doesn't really read body language well. And so it's just so interesting how our, our you know, our past informs uh, how we are today. However, the thing I like about what you just said is that you are you are aware of it, and you create that boundary to let people know this is how I am, but I'm not unwilling to still hear you out and feel you out. But this is how I am, and that's important. You got to communicate who you are. But part of that work is really knowing who you are, right? Spending the time to really figure out well who 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 really is uh, Elisa? Like what you know? What does she really like or don't like? Or what are her weaknesses and strengths? Like actually spending time and figuring that out. Well, that's why I was going to say with this 2017, you know, slap in the face. I made it through all this. I did that. I did this. I did that. International success. UPIO. 
I was all happy just being able to drive in Manhattan, much less work on, you know, the Rockefeller's apartment in 39 rooms. That was fine too. But I can tell you right now, I really, really got my soul handed to me on the night of that fire when I decided to run with my husband down to the fire station at midnight because I saw the fire distant and it couldn't be that we we're having this, such a strong smoke around our house. So I thought we better go down to the fire station and find out what's going on. It's midnight. Oh, I just have to say on the way down our hill, which is a one, it's just one way out. And there's a bunch of, there's maybe 25 or 30 houses on that hill. I never honked my horn. I didn't call anyone. I didn't try to help anyone. I just thought of myself. Now, my son has said, you know, that is normal. It's instinct. You're running. Don't worry. You know, I'm like, no, it's not normal for someone who's been called a murderer to run, you know, hightailing it out, not trying to help anyone and then find out later, what if someone had died? Okay. So this is like, bam, you know, okay, you are not who you say you are. You're not really living who you say you are. You think you're generous and kind, but in fact, you're still like, you know, so armored, right? This armor needed to melt after this 2017 fire, I just realized I'm missing a huge part of nature. It's called human nature. You, you're 72. Are you getting at that time? I was 68. You, you're 68. You know, you have 20 or 30 years to get this right now. And you think you're curious. You think you're courageous and you haven't even explored anything about humans. I'm still a little skeptical, but what if there's as much joy in people as there is in nature? I, I will miss out the whole thing. I could have already died by now and not ever known, right? So engagement, this is now my time. The fire burned a hole in my nature girl story. I must do the other side of nature, the human nature. And this is, I have to face this scary thing that Chris Rock is talking about, engaging authentically. I want to ask you a, a question that's a bit personal, but I'm going to ask your permission to ask it. I'm totally I'm, okay. take, I'm taking my interviewer hat off for a second and putting my coaching hat on. Okay. What would it look like for you if you were able to really disconnect from that word murderer? Disconnect where it's completely behind you, burned and to never see again. What would that do for you? How do you think you would live differently? Oh, that's a huge one. I love this. Even despite my 30 years of therapy, I haven't done this thing. And of course, it wasn't every day, people, that I did 30 years of therapy, but off and on. So when you said that it was, and it was gone, burned, I saw myself writing the word and then tearing it all up into tiny, tiny pieces and then burning it, right? And then I can bury that. And that's what I can do. And then I can go hiking on the mountain. And then I can tell you what it feels like. It looks good. It sounds good. I believe in it probably is good. I need to do that. It's a figurative question, but you're, you're browbeating yourself with guilt about this word that came from somebody else who doesn't even really know you. She might've been related to you, but she doesn't really know you. There's a little bit of work there, obviously, but I just, I just wanted to offer that to you. It's front and center because I use this as the organizing principle in my memoir. And before the fire, I did not use that at all. And I wasn't looking at how I related to human nature. So the 
the whole book got rewritten, which was already done, got reorganized and rewritten after this fire thing. So it's like really top of mind how much it really, I mean, it does truly bother me if I think that I've hurt someone ever, but it doesn't mean that I'm going around being perfect because I get accused of being insensitive and awfully lot. The way I'd like you to look at it, and then we'll, we'll move because it's a longer conversation, but think about it like this. If you went to the store today and you bought a, I just got a new lap, new Mac laptop, 2022, brand new Mac laptop, and you turned on the Mac laptop and Windows 98 popped up on the screen. We were like, well, what the hell is that doing there? This is 2022. That was 98. Or worse, if you pressed power and MS-DOS came on. The point is, there's this outdated program that continues to run. And it's draining your energy. And so I'm just going to leave it there. I'm listening to you. And you, you've got so much to give. You're so talented. You... you you just, you have so much to give this life. And I feel like there's that, this little piece that, again, we talked about it before, there is no end. It's just making steps towards what one would call the spirit or some level of your real self versus the personality. So this thing, this program is part of your personality that keeps sort of beating you down and causing some distance between you and, and people. And, you know, I, I, I think you want to be free of it. And I think it, it, it's it's time. There, it, the, there's no mistakes. There's no reason I'm, I'm. We had this interview, and there's no reason I'm saying this to you. So we don't. We can we can close that conversation. But I just wanted to to put that Thank out you. there. You're welcome. Thank <laughs> you. I mean, I see. I hear you. The hole in my bucket. It's up to me to fix that hole and stop draining my own self. You know why keep doing it? Before we move on, I'll just say I appreciate your openness and allowing me to to go there. I I don't take that 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 lightly. Last part of the show is called First Impressions. I'm going to say a, a word, and you're going to say the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. Number one, the Catholic Church. Pain. Number two, children. Warmth. Number three, nature. Essence. Number four, Elisa Stancil. Joy. Nice. Number five, affirmations. Joy. Number six, visualizations. Lessons. Ah. Number seven, trauma. Dark. Number eight, and the last one, healing. Oh, flower blooming. <laughs> Flowers blooming. Okay. <laughs> All right. Beautiful. Beautiful. You did good. A lot of people, they find it hard to, you know, really get one word in. Uh, Use a couple (laughs) words. That was beautiful. All right, Elisa, listen, how can people find your book and connect with you and figure out, you know, learn what, learn a little bit more about what you're doing? Um, I have a website. It's elisastancellevine.com. I got married to my fourth husband after we dated for 30 years. So you can see that it took me a long time to find him. As I said, I looked everywhere for you. <laughs> so I'm using his last name and my, as my last name, finally. So it's elisastancellevine.com. And I'm on Instagram that way and LinkedIn and this and that, not hard to find. And you can get my book on Amazon, any kind of small bookstore, Barnes & Noble, whatever. Okay, great. And I would love you to read it. 
Are you are you planning any northeastern uh, book tours? I see you did some couple book signings in your in your area in, in Cali, California. Yeah, I might in Manhattan. I have a really good architect friend that I uh, I might have a book signing in Manhattan in conjunction with him sometime in in the fall. But right now it's not planned. This COVID thing, you know. I mean, I like doing it in person. It's really fun. So. As a, I mean, kind of spoiled already because I've had three in person and, you know, but that's not necessarily in the cards for everybody right now. And it might be that I do something that's a Zoom-like um, and that would be easier. All right. Well, if you come if you if you come to the city, please let me know. I'll definitely try to make it there and drag some people with me. OK, thank you. Thank you very You're much. Welcome. I will. You're welcome. All right. I'm going <laughs> to sign you. off as I always do that the truth will only set you free if you let it. 